stand your ground. There's an epigraph. In this white wilderness, men and women and children move all day, carrying washing, wood, buckets of milk or water, sometimes skiing on Sunday afternoons. The landscape is absolutely forbidding. The landscape is absolutely forbidding. That man standing in the snow is a potential lake effect situation, and I am waiting for him to go off. A man alone in snow is an offense against the nature of man. No one belongs in snow without a covering. Sometimes such a covering may be a simple red gable pushing out against the white world at both ends. Other times, a lone telephone wire overhead with three pigeons on it, sitting side by side. In winter, shorn of the fierce work of the deciduous canopy, everything thin black sticks. It's worse when snow reveals only the intimations of houses, when we can't even find the houses anymore. The sky has given him up. Though our man has bundled up his thin skin, red hat and dark Carhartt jacket, Snow packed into the folds of his heavy denim. Layers of fabric cover the blank eye of his body. Other times, relationships instead of structures or textiles work to form a hold over us. In this case, here I am, looking through the windshield at a man standing on his two feet. I am that rolling inclemency beside him. In my car, I am also perhaps the closest I can come to him without being with him. Around me, the glow from the street light hits the snow, even though it's still day. Next, I watch him plod along with the stiff, slow steps we use when traveling through a world that is deep and thick and full of the possibility of falling. This is all kinds of wrong. Their only bulwark against a moral chaos is absolute as the physical chaos of the continent. Their only bulwark against a moral chaos is absolute as the physical chaos of the continent. Our man is a warm, live, vulnerable thing, and he can't help it that the warmth is always going out of him to be swallowed up by the mean and the cold. The ultimate aim of the man's activity in such snow is hidden from view, like my mother's flower bed, her little clay brick border falling to pieces. When the sense is taken away, when the road is obliterated by snow and the city reverts whole cloth back to a landscape condition, what goes off is the mechanism of my belief. Trouble comes when I am not so sure of the road beneath me and nothing is marked to remind us how quickly and repeatedly we leave one another. Set loose in the snow, it's as if there is nowhere else. Though I try to use whatever references I can to mark a path, I don't get very far. Beauty can be found, however, in the underlying structure of branches that reinforce the arresting image beneath the precarious behavior of wet snow, piling up on bare radial branches like some kind of cold, costly fruit. Take this man, lost outside the covering of a car or a home, Somewhere along his journey between an invisible here and an invisible there, I am aware that my perception of him is flawed. He looks like he belongs nowhere, revealing the unconscious bias that cripples my sight. Here is a man in possession of no service of shelter against these great white squalls. My basic error of logic is a fallacy of composition. So that when standing out in the unfriendly weather condition, I perceive the human being as a transgressive feature of the scene instead of the snow cover which obliterates the town 
Under this lens, our man is the alien, a lone mark on the land. A spectacle means that even while I see it in my car, I press towards our man. The closer I come to him, closer still is the oncoming potential of my mechanical body. The sound growing, the noise, my wheels on ice drawing dangerously close. In the condition of snow, I am faced with the challenge of attending more closely to my surroundings. A challenge I love of not skidding out, the risk watching for the pedestrians. I know, despite whatever is broken in my sight, that I become displaced too when I can't understand the existence of any human being on the landscape, whenever human existence in any place becomes a crime, a wrong. The indigenous birds and squirrels also missing in a storm. At the stop sign, I look to the left and then the right, and then I keep moving. The villagers are able, presumably, to come and go as they please. The villagers are able, presumably, to come and go as they please. As for the rest of the city folks in your cars, I hear your wheels turning and pulling in the snow, not getting anywhere. Keep pushing the pedal down. I listen in the dark to your effort to rock the machine out of that rut, out of your ice melt, out of your wet depression, the consequence of your own weight and heat, your tendency to warp and melt down the world around you. Snow homelessness is an event in the realm of my sensory perception that requires a fair bit of snow. A structure of belief must be built regarding the incontrovertibility of the landscape. So it comes to be that the driving snow and the driving is all there is, a complete overriding culture. Under the snow, then, the world becomes a closed set. More terrible, more subtle, more meaningful, more terrible, more subtle, more meaningful. What we talk about when we talk about what feels true is really a kind of devastation, the revelation of a split between reality and the testimony of my body. A good driver has both a great capacity for feeling and the ability to respond quickly and appropriately to said feelings. A good driver knows how to feel for the ground beneath her through even the horror of the machine. She listens for the sound of your far away distress, her engine not turning over, and registers those deep depressions in the snow as a sign of upcoming trouble. Please, cruise around in your boat, don't slide. Please, I want your foot off the gas when changing lanes. I want you to make it over the hump of ice between us without that jerk at the wheel. Reckless drivers cause collisions safe drivers may avoid. When I fail to behold a man standing before me, if I employ without thinking the category of homelessness over him like a hood, please watch out for the coming deadly force. Even my feelings can be corrupted, even the mechanisms of sense within the privacy of my body. Let's be clear, however, about how snow comes to cover a world, how we come to grow quiet in a storm under several feet of accumulation, very carefully. Though I recognize immediately the error in my perception, I admit that my othering work reflects bona fide feelings in me, even if only those hidden feelings that thunder through me right before the flash of fear hits. The good news is that all this snow makes some structures especially visible, Take the red garage next door, which I am free to contemplate all day on the road in the treacherous weather so that the magnetism of that red structure, a simple gable against the snow, grows moment by moment into the emblem of the heart of my traveling. Driving in snow, we hope it's not long before there's someone, anyone, we can reach. 
a certain awful wonder as to what kind of human being it is, a certain awful wonder as to what kind of human being it is. We know homelessness is a measure of belonging, not a lack of home ownership. The concept of homelessness is, after all, a labor in itself, a mechanism by which I hide from my beliefs about where people belong unsheltered. As I drive past, one man shoveling his drive remains tethered to his house yet. Who doesn't let the house out of his sight. I can feel his impatient, pending authority, calf deep in snow as I slowly cruise by in my boat. He stands his ground in the shadow of the house, flinging the white powder over his head. I can feel the threat of the personal mountain of refuge at his back, two stories tall. When the man breathes out, I see what looks to be a kind of smoke. The ferocity of his work of ownership and the sacrifice he pays to his ownership indicate that this man thinks he belongs right here. Yet, if the road continues to be obliterated by snow, if it keeps coming down and there is no use shoveling, then there is no drive, no getting out of the whiteout condition. Within this welt, within the paw of it, when the sky is white and the earth is white, I lose the boundary between up and down land, becomes a dream I forget upon waking, where everything I loved to recognize, every holy named thing, has been run off the continent of sense. Everyone in the village knows my name, though they scarcely ever use it. Everyone in the village knows my name, though they scarcely ever use it. One moment, I apprehend the outline of a man, but then the next glance he's gone. Or... I don't perceive him at all, the man I see as the emblem of fear itself. To have an unyielding, irreconcilable fear of another is to commit a crime against something human. Unrelenting fear is nourishment in the belly of the growing indomitable. The hazard of this man, uh, homelessness no then, is my own monstrous will for effort to abandon him. I let him be an offense. The emotion I perceive in that weather is my own ruthlessness. We give ourselves a break. As it seems, fear is so buried beneath this white wilderness. Yes, snow may be an artificial covering over the world, but it's also a revelation in me. This is what it means to become a stranger in the village, to no longer belong to the taxonomy of the world. It's only whites here. If you love winter, you also know your love for snow shelters under your real love of a similar sense of transgression, persisting where it hurts, pressing through the frostbitten. Here is your lovely, belligerent joy in snow activities and snow games. This is where you stand your ground. Otherwise, it is very cold. The snow is real snow. Protecting the surface of your body isn't enough. What about the rest of your power, your reactive potential? For instance, the way you call out your mother's name and smoke your voice ricocheting off the icy auditoria. What about the magnetism of your dark body, your wrecking power, your will? When you are shot, there is the energy of your body spilling out forever. I want us all to feel the weight of such overwhelming snow. I want you, reader, to stumble around in the struggle to recover oneself. I want you knee-deep in it, too. Something is blowing about in your head or over your head when you belong in the distortion where I am. His human weight, the complexity and the strain, his human weight, the complexity and the strain. Opening the door, noticing the man lying at my feet, I did not scream. I did not scream, even though I wanted to, even though I almost lost it, his soft body so unexpectedly in my power. I did not think he was dead. He was just a man 
peeing, belonging. So I caught myself, stepping clumsily over him as if through the snow. This was years before my wintry Ohio. For days, the pendant light had been out above the doorway of our San Francisco flat, too tall for any of my housemates to reach, a simple missing bulb, and behold, a man sprouting up, as if the dark itself was a kind of incubator. He came back every night, like you do with your house. The next day, once again, I collected the man, sleeping under the cover of darkness at the foot of the stairs, as if I were my mother, waking her child from a hard sleep. Okay, baby, it's time. Come. The light's up. You must needs get on up now. Morning is here. Um, while I said this, I thought about the three women upstairs, my housemates who would soon be flying out of this very same door. I wanted to save them from the shock of the morning's heart attack. These three women were the reasons I found anything at all to say to a man who had found a place to sleep away from the light and the wet conditions. I know my housemates really would feel fear. Young people may live a precarious life beneath only the lightest covering of safety. After work, I asked everyone about him, our rugged man, but no one else had seen him. In fact, sleep when it comes is a gift I should like this man to have. When he has sewn himself up finally in the security of the shelter of sleep, I'd rather do nothing more than float by. As I made my way through the traffic across the panhandle of Golden Gate Bridge, large, bounding mastiffs ran in wide circles through the mud. Despite the cruel and totally inescapable ambivalence of his status in his country, despite the cruel and totally inescapable ambivalence of his status in his country. I crossed this muddy swamp in Golden Gate Park every day on the way to work. In my heart, I had come to think of the small section of the panhandle as my own front yard. On this night, light from the street lamp overhead flooded the ground behind the back of my friend as he told me that the mud I encountered daily was just an unintended side effect. It's really just a matter of public safety, he said. The overactive sprinkler system in the panhandle was specifically conceived as a deterrent against the homeless. Looking at the park over his shoulder under the cover of night, it was easy to imagine how this might be the case. It does get very dark. He looked off, downward slightly and to the left, either, either because he was at that moment taking on our collective mantle of shame, or because he was slightly embarrassed by the extent of his own knowledge. I couldn't tell which. I thought about, instead, what it must be like to feel the earth is pissing on you, or the city is pissing on you, to feel the very ground beneath you welling up. Yet one must also recognize that morality is based on ideas, and all ideas are dangerous. Yet one must also recognize that morality is based on ideas, and all ideas are dangerous. Fight or flight is often thought of a series of purely autonomic reactions. We like to think we just can't help it. It's only that I know better. I know we don't always have to be afraid. Not that I'm perfect. No moral high ground here. I just know that I had better not scream upon seeing the homeless man at my feet. This is a warning or a lesson from my dear mother who teaches us to watch that any person simply existing is to be to us no cause for exclamation. I recognize my willingness to be unafraid of my neighbors as a humanizing act. A culture where fear is a status symbol, where fear has passed into the realm of art, is a culture in which we love being taken over. In place of real trepidation, we carry the hope that the art of fear might thrill us or decode us. Fear is not a magic 
Over time, the neighborhood of our fear becomes more pedestrian and familiar to us than ever before, despite what our analysis of basic brainstem functions might suggest. Fears deployed similarly in war. First, fear is an ideological tactic to stagger the mind strong enough to distract from the struggle of daily life. Then, fear is deployed as a trigger, fit now to arm that body, driven by whatever appeal on behalf of the Federation will serve. In art or aggression, the goal is to exert control over the faculties of another, either through a kind of terror or a kind of awe. This is how we come to like to think that we can't help it. We enjoy being lost to ourselves. For good or for bad, we pay to submit to the violence of our own willful disbelief. So burning a question, so burning a question. My students don't believe in homeless people. For them, this is simply one more article of faith. They are interested in homeless folks with iPhones who they think they see hanging around Akron, Ohio. The students suspect these women and men are gaming the system. This is what they want to write about for their investigative essays. All the faces light up, and I look into their bright faces. Then I look down towards my left. I start to pace the floor. So many slouching bodies scattered about me. It's hard to know where to step. Where were we? A student near the front weighs in. Instead of making us write another essay about synecdoche or however you say it, finally, here's something I have personal experience with. And she's partially right. Actual homeless people are indeed many drop stitches in the fabric of the campus landscape within this city. Now everyone wants to talk at once. Every semester, I note the same press of sound on this front. I'm always shocked by the overwhelming consensus. I ask the students why they want to wish people away. What's in it for you in this quest to believe that homelessness is a trick? Why go around blacking people out of the known world? I look out the window. Snow piles up on the soccer field and soon will obliterate any sign of the penalty box altogether. Some of the students I know for a fact have recently been homeless, so you'd think they'd understand that it's not always a thriller or a game. Others may yet be homeless now if you want to think of it that way. They usually don't. I know this about them from their writing, though they don't know this about each other. Do I look away? I suppose the students are simply seduced by the beauty of such a frame, that things simply must work out for you if you try. After all, they do all want to get A's. The students, for their part, have largely been protected from the various nonsensical implications of the mean, cold world around them. I know the students' disbelief is simply a structure they shelter under to keep out the storm. Likewise, crashing on friends' couches here and there is fine for now. As usual, the students stand their ground on the homelessness issue as a united front. Uh, while I do challenge them, I don't push too hard. There's time. I am not really a stranger any longer. I am not really a stranger any longer. As if this were a combat mission, I tell my students the following week how I caught a glimpse of the new pickers in my neighborhood on the move, fanning out through the ward methodically, like organized troops. Something awful and beautiful was about it. I watched them work from inside the cab of my car on the way to campus, folks looking for the goods among what even poor people have thrown away. This, I tell them, is amazing and hopeful in a neighborhood where you can't even get a pizza delivered because it's too dangerous. What I saw on the street corresponded to the essay we'd read about a literarily-minded man who'd gone dumpster diving with his dog. Maybe y'all have seen it. Uh, the man was not necessarily homeless. In fact, he doesn't say. The students noted, however, the author's erudite formal inclinations. 
As they talk, I cover the floor, throwing my chalk in the air as I go, and it's dust, catching the stub in my hand on the way back down. I ask, why does our author's insistence on etiquette catch us off guard? We are especially shocked by his formal stance when viewed against the landscape of refuse. In a YouTube video, I showed the class clips of a different man, but oddly enough, he has the same fine posture of formality as he outlines for us the four C's which conscribe every effect of proper decorum for the dumpster diver. Did you see this coming? I asked them. We have arrived at the secret boundary of a subculture where there are insiders and outsiders. The gatekeeping we see here is indication of a door where lives in ways previously hidden now become visible. I am delighted to show the students the edge of such a hidden village. I like for them to think about how one might hide homes so large right in plain view. It is necessary, nevertheless, for me to repeat this to myself. It is necessary, nevertheless, for me to repeat this to myself. Underneath all of this, I'm really thinking about the snow. I look out the window where a walking bundle in his own body makes me doubt myself, my rolling position, horsepower pulling me further away across the ice. This is a stranger I become when I can no longer map the distance between myself and another. Without any sense that the land before me is populated with something human, I grow uneasy. My three-dimensional identity is secured by the visible horizon. Without it, in all that snow, I experience some kind of crippling effect. How could this be me? As a queer black woman, I recognize the danger and the labor of my othering work across this landscape. Baldwin's language then pops into my head, a red gable on which to focus. There is often something beautiful. There is always something awful and the spectacle of a person who has lost one of his faculties, the faculty he never questioned until it was gone and who struggles to recover it. Often something beautiful, always something awful, even the writer's own culpability. When my faculties are hidden, I should know. It's a miracle not to have a sense of the true depth of your own form, the cripples, is what it says in the text, who come for the hot springs in Baldwin's mountain town, don't show up again in his essay after his initial quick observations. A sympathetic figures in a similar struggle towards a full recovery. I see now how they very much belong in a text about learned fears of stark, dark, indomitable bodies. And this is so, despite everything I may do to feel differently. And this is so, despite everything I may do to feel differently. In these conditions, to come across a man suddenly, I meet my own human body vis-a-vis -vis his silhouette on snow, a man who is my shameful confession, the shock or the horror I am approaching. His presence captivates me. I can't look away. What we do when things don't make sense reveals a lot about us. I should understand what it's like to be that thing hidden in plain sight, even hidden while being pointed out, an exotic, a wonder, an exception that I can count and read and sing and question and understand and know and stay quiet. I could understand this is one awful way to belong. Minor changes in weather can occur, however, when we're not looking, often to disastrous effect. For example, the change from sleet to ice, dry falling snow to wet falling snow, the cold growing more bitter. Bless your heart. So that a dark man on the map may cause a change in the physiology of my body without my actually having to look at him, without even my noticing that I have seen him. I try to catch myself. Their blue eyes shine like ice, their blue eyes shine like ice. Riding down the escalator in the shopping plaza, I found, staring at me, 
two pairs of small blue eyes, two blonde children, twins, adorable, a boy and a girl. They must have been more than five years old. Her parents were a covering over them, the children holding hands between twin parental columns. Moving forward, the parents were looking forward towards the exit, but the little ones facing the wrong direction were turned back to look at me as if something was coming. That steely look on their faces I recognized eventually as a look of offense. I felt like an invasion of their privacy. I hate to know too much about the strangers I meet. This was not just the look of one beholding a spectacle which would be bad enough, but disdain, a budding belligerence. How, how had they already been taught to magnify difference without likely any kind of conscious direction toward this from the parents who were covering the children? Parents, the children revealed this othering work aged the children so that their physical contours seemed to grow into smaller versions of that face the adults hide away. A state of innocence long after that innocence is dead. A state of innocence long after that innocence is dead. The woman couldn't be more than five foot naught, but she did jump a little bit when she screamed. It was a strange kind of exclamation. In the back of the room, we were busy getting coffee, a dozen women milling about in the fellowship area at church. You know, cookies and clucking. I explained to the woman next to me which carafe held the hot water for tea. I was, as usual, the only black person in the room, but I had been around the place for over a year. I wasn't new. I wasn't a stranger, but the woman looked right at me and screamed in genuine fright, as if she'd seen the boogeyman in a place where she had not expected to meet him. Though the room was full of people, no one said anything. No one asked her what she saw or why she screamed. I... Instead, I asked if she was okay. Was it worth wishing people away? Is it enough to address a crippling effect? The ladies who said nothing are worth mentioning because when a 79-year-old woman screams in a room full of people, it belies their knowledge as opposed to their innocence when one does not respond to her. It's a shame there's no way I could help her. She seemed rattled but not embarrassed. I wish she was. Her lack of embarrassment just meant she was standing her ground, though I'm a short woman, usually smiling, not wearing any dark hood. I knew exactly what was going on or not going on in her head. Here is a moment of mercy I bear for her, even if she's afraid to regard it. It belies a kind of double-blind arrogance for her actions to say to me that there is no way I could be facing a real cold world she is looking away from. This is one way she defends her house the house of the world she knows. This is guilt fright, the house where your guilt is hidden. It's especially dangerous weather when my guilt is hidden in my fright because fear is a more stealth emotion than mere indifference. And indifference, at least I feel the aggression of my own ugliness. Guilt fright is unreflective, aggression hidden beneath the cloak of passivity, hidden under the dress of victim behavior. In any case, my guilt and fear and indifference effectively shield me from the magnitude of the mountain of my own feelings. Something changed briefly and suddenly in that woman or else, something young and powerful in her let go, and I am always aware of the possibility of this change, yet a lovely woman who means well, she has just fallen into a vacuum of reality, which I understand. It's the way you feel, banked and numb in a storm in winter, having fallen over into the nonsense of snow. Thank you.